0: For decades, obviously, Brussels has been kind of the propaganda of more globalization, more free trade, a believer in multilateral trade. And like you said, that rhetoric has often been confronted with criticism from third countries. But I think that the move that we're seeing now is that even the first part, the rhetoric, is threatening to um, be kind of given up because of the current geopolitical context.
1: It was the opening shot of what the Wall Street Journal's editorial board fears may become a protracted climate trade war between the United States and the European Union. In a notorious departure from standard EU lip service to free trade, late last week French President Emmanuel Macron urged fellow European leaders anew to match the Biden administration's round of green subsidies poured barreled into the Inflation Reduction Act. Unhelpfully economized as IRA, that legislative package was signed into law in August. And as part of it, the U.S. Treasury will be offering tax breaks and other market rigging subsidies to companies manufacturing electric vehicles in the U.S., which President Macron fears will unfairly disadvantage their European competitors. Macron claims there should be a greater joint effort to accelerate the grain transition on both sides of the Atlantic. In this latest episode, episode, with the economist Charlemagne columnist Stanley Pignall and Politico's Barbara Moens, we inquire whether the EU is really as committed to free trade as its liberal cheerleaders claim in the first place, and whether this latest round of rhetorical animus may spark a real trade war between transatlantic allies. Enjoy the episode. Well,
2: wonderful.
1: Uh, To get started with this uh, conversation... Our first question is going to be a sort of a general one. Um, the EU has been historically characterized as uh, as a protectionist block from the outside, so it raises barriers to trading with other uh, nations, but a free trading block within. Uh, which reputation do you think is closest to to reality, Barbara?
0: I, that's a tricky question to start with. Um, I'd argue both. I mean, for decades, obviously, Brussels has been kind of the propaganda of more globalization, more free trade, a believer in multilateral trade, big believer of the World Trade Organization. And like you said, that rhetoric has often been confronted with criticism from third countries who see the EU as a protectionist block when it comes to agriculture, but also other sectors. Um, But I think that the move that we're seeing now is that even the first part, the rhetoric, is threatening to um, be kind of given up because of the current geopolitical context. Uh,
1: Stanley, is there anything you want to add to that in terms of the, uh, you know, just for starters, what should people bear in mind when we're analyzing uh, the European Union's trade policies?
2: I I think fundamentally the EU is is a free trade kind of place, especially especially now, I, I, I completely agree with Barbara that we're seeing a, a shift in the rhetoric in a more protectionist direction. Uh, but I would say the EU isn't protectionist by global standards, certainly not compared to America under Donald Trump or even Joe Biden. What you could say is that the EU is protectionist by EU standards. Um, it, it's always been, been quite open. Uh, they've always been very keen on uh, protecting uh, the multilateral trading system but it, it, it's a lonely fight, uh, and in the past few, few years, uh, I like a phrase that the Bruno Le Maire, uh, the French minister used recently saying that Europe was the last American, uh really the last defender of, of this, this free trade system, uh, and that politically and economically becomes unviable.
3: Yeah. The... The single market is itself sort of the embodiment of a triumph of free trade by enabling the free movement of goods and people. But externally, its reputation is quite different. I mean, I'm sitting here in Washington, and if you asked most Americans what they thought of the EU, at least from a a business and political standpoint, they would probably describe it as a protectionist block, um, looking at, say, agriculture subsidies, and then even most recently, the carbon border adjustment tax. So globally, at least... Does the EU really? Is it really a voice for for free trade on a global scale? Uh, Barbara.
0: Um, Again, I think that that discussion is now very relevant because when it comes to the carbon border mechanism that you mentioned, for example, but we have a lot of other regulation in the EU that's either underway or that's already there. For example, when it comes to a forced labor ban, when it comes to due diligence in your supply chain, when it comes to the deforestation regulation, those are all things that in the past, I think the EU would have tried to leverage via free trade deals but is now kind of unilaterally imposing on third countries that it trades with. Um, The EU is saying, you know, this is all for the better, right? It's either for climate, it's for social labor standards, kind of imposing its values and rules throughout the world, the Brussels effect, right. Um, but obviously, what we hear from a lot of third countries is that this is actually making trade with the EU much harder, um, and that it will hurt their economies um, and their and their businesses. So I think that rhetoric has always kind of been there, but that is getting even louder um, now. And that was before we had this discussion about uh, about new subsidies um, when it comes to um, confronting the, the Americans on the inflation reduction act.
2: Yeah, what I would, what I would add is, is, and I'm sure we'll come to this. Is, you know, we speak of the EU as a single;
0: uh,
2: it has a, a single voice. Uh, but obviously, there are many different constituent parts, different countries think differently about trade, France thinks very differently about trade, uh, for example Ireland or Denmark. Um, you have a lot of small countries that, as a general rule, are very open to trade. Uh, they understand that, that they need uh, foreign trade uh, to thrive, and then you have some countries that are, that are a little bit less infused on, on, on globalization free trade, which is often the French. And then I would add that you have uh, a bureaucracy in the middle of all this. Uh, which is the European Commission, which is, uh, I think, kind of predisposed favorably to trade. You remember that historically, trade was one of the few conferences where uh, the EU really, really mattered, right? so the power to sign free trade deals was uh, a European power. Uh, and I think partly as a result, uh, there's a bureaucracy that's built up around uh, the importance of free trade uh, and of supporting multilateral trade. Um, which means that, uh, that, if you speak to uh, the bureaucracy in Brussels, as a general rule, you know it, it's a pretty liberal free trade bunch.
0: Yeah, I, I no, I totally, I totally agree with that. In the sense that is really um, what is happening now is really a mind shift um, for the European Commission. I have, I mean, it has been going on for a while, right? The trade deals have been. Under attack in, in the last couple of years, we saw the all the troubles that the EU had with either concluding or ratifying um, deals, not just the big ones like the one with, uh, with the U.S. TTIP, but also with smaller ones and with with future ones like the one that the EU wants to close with the Latin American bloc of Mercosur. So that has really been putting a lot of pressure on, on the European Commission, on its trade department, on its civil servants to kind of question, you know, their fundamental belief in you know more trade is make. The world a better place, and obviously, the um, China's behavior in the WTO and then Russia's um, behavior in Ukraine has not helped
1: that rhetoric. Yeah, um, so I think both of you and both of the magazines that you write for, The Economist in Julian's case and Politico in Barbara's case, have picked up this uh, at least this uh, rhetor- rhetorical uh, shift in terms of. Um, How uh, EU officials have gone about addressing uh, trade with with America. Um, Now, if we try to harken back to the reaction to the uh, to the Inflation Reduction Act in Brussels, um, just as with any other sort of response to a um, to a spike in subsidies, it's hard to know whether there's actually whether the Europeans really do have a point and. Uh, America is effectively tilting the balance in its favor when it comes to trade in those uh in, in the kinds of um products that are being subsidized or or is there actually a real point um is there is, is it just domestic politics or do you think that uh that uh, president Macron has uh, has a real point when it comes to these subsidies um Barbara
0: i mean i think from the European stand of view i think the the most the biggest point that they had was um, a, you know, this is further undermining the the global multilateral trading system, which is not a surprise given what has happened under you know Obama, Trump, and then Biden when it comes to the the U.S. behavior towards the WTO. But also more fundamentally in transatlantic relations, like how can you pass this entire legislation without just thinking about one second about what this would do to your um, to your so-called ally? Right. So there is a sort of Frustration with a lot of capitals and the European Commission itself. Um, it is true that the EU woke up to it very late as well, right? It was it was August, which is classically a time when a lot of um, people here in Brussels are on holidays, um, and obviously the domestic political situation in in, the, in Washington was so complex in the in the hours days leading up to this legislation that that was hard, I think, for a lot of other countries to see what exactly would happen in the in the final version. Um, So I think fundamentally there's, it makes sense that the EU is making a lot of noise about this, but obviously, and I mean, we've, you have touched on this in the podcast. A lot of people have said this. Um, the feeling in Washington is obviously like, you know, it was the EU that had asked for the US to step up on climate, right? Which they now did with this inflation reduction act. So why complain now? Um, so I guess there's from both sides, there's a, there's a case to be made, but it's clear that. Something has to happen to iron this out.
1: Yeah, Stanley. What, what do you think? Do you think there's an, an, a way to objectively ascertain whether uh, Europe has has a point in, in terms of the qualms it has with the Inflation Reduction Act?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think certainly Europe has has a real point. The IRA is a problem. Uh, it would be a problem even if you just had a, a lot of subsidies that were open to Europeans. Even that would, would create havoc. But the, the fact that it is Really tinged with protectionism, uh, arguably undermines European industry, which is already in a really fragile position uh, because of much higher energy prices. And if you speak to European makers, they'll say, "Well, you know, why are European uh, energy prices so high? Because we are bearing the brunt of the sanctions uh, that the U.S. is among those who are very keen for us to uh, to carry out the sanctions on Russia, obviously." Um, so, so there is uh, there is a real point. There. Real, real feeling uh, just because there's a real point doesn't mean uh, that the solution uh, is to start some kind of trade war or subsidy war um, so even uh even if they, everybody agrees on the diagnosis uh nobody quite agrees with the cure. Is, uh and there you start to integrate familiar divisions uh, on one hand the french and then you're Macron saying, you know we must buy european we must have massive subsidies Nobody knows exactly who will pay for them, but we must have a massive subsidies. And on the other side, you have uh, the Dutch, uh, to some extent the Germans, the Irish, and so on, who say, "No, we must, we must kind of remain a free trading bloc." And, and it's particularly important at this point in time that Europe, if it's going to be the only one who pays by the world, that Europe kind of carries uh, the responsibility of, of keeping a uh, free trading system going.
3: Yeah, just to sort of jump in there, the EU has its own, I, I guess, equivalent of the EV subsidy. It has the European Battery Alliance, um, which aims to shore up supply chains for battery production and development within Europe. It has passed its own Semiconductor Subsidy Act. Um, is is this really just the case of the concern that while well, the EU is attempting to take these steps to... Uh, shore up its own industrial base under the leadership of Thierry Breton, but the United States has just got a bigger gun and has undermined those efforts? Is this really just a case of, you know, they're not actually talking about free trade and how subsidies are bad. They just realize that they can't win in this fight,
0: Uh, starting with you, Barbara. Well, I think too, and that's kind of the point that that Stan made before, that is part of the discussion that's going on within the EU at this point, right? Um, I mean, France has obviously been pushing for years for a more strong industrial policy within the EU, for more subsidies, for more um, strategic autonomy, right, as, as uh, Paris likes to call it. Um, so far, there has been a lot of, of pushback. Now that that discussion is is heating up, um, there is uh, there are a lot of countries that say even if you would want to do it, you know, we just don't have a the money to do it, but also b not the kind of institutional architecture to do it. Right? Tax breaks can be done at the national level. There are other things that have to be done at the European level. So that makes the whole exercise much more complicated than in Washington.
2: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with uh, the, the of the question. That the IRA that the US devised didn't come in a massive right? way. Uh, European fumbling uh, about. Uh, America's protectionism would carry a lot more weight if the EU hadn't already dipped its toes in that water. Uh, what do I mean? In the last Over two years, four or five years, uh, we've seen some policies come out of Europe uh, that don't aim to raise trade barriers, but it's certainly been a side effect. Um, so you mentioned CBAM, the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Uh, that's a perfectly good policy, right? Aiming to penalize companies that import uh from countries that, that don't uh, do enough on, on the environment. Very sensible policy, but you, you, you are excluding people from your market. It, it is a form of protectionism. Uh, we've seen the restriction uh, restrictions on foreign companies bidding for public procurement contracts in, in Europe. We've seen investment screening, uh, so keeping foreign companies out of some sectors of the European economy. Um, we've seen curtailing the activities of foreign companies that receive state aid from non-EU countries. With mean, all this stuff, none of this in and of themselves is, is protectionist, but it's protectionism adjacent. And I think the IRA is, is kind of a continuation of that. And part of the reason why it's so galling for someone like Michael is that I, I think it's exactly the kind of thing that he would have liked to have done. Uh, but as Barbara points out, you know, Europe you know, is a complicated place when it comes to devising. And, and you have to start with the most complicated question always, just who's going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from?
1: Yeah, and um, Barbara, in, in uh, one of your uh, initial answers, you mentioned uh, Mercosur, and I, I take it from your reference that Mercosur is perhaps the least uh, static of the ongoing trade negotiations the EU is conducting worldwide. And uh, can can you uh, perhaps take us through some of these sticking points right now that are uh, that are uh, uh, that have come up in the relation in, in the, in the uh, negotiations over Mercosur and what? What is the path forward? What what, are, what do you think is going to happen with that deal?
0: Yeah, maybe just to take a step back. I mean, when the war in Ukraine uh, in February started, there was a, immediately kind of a push from the EU side to diversify away, right, from from Russia and to a lesser extent also China. And so to more uh, kind of hit the gas pedal and all the trade negotiation that were kind of, basically, a lot of them were in the freezer because of political situations um, with those countries. So we have... Um, so far, we've seen um, negotiations concluded with New Zealand, right last week with Chile, and now uh, Mexico is is um, is on its way. And then the the biggest that the EU is still aiming for before the European elections in 2024 is Mercosur. Um, and with Mercosur, it has been very politically sensitive, sensitive again because of Macron. He's always um, uh, very much at the center of these trade debates. Um, in the sense that Mercosur is sensitive both for agriculture, but also for Deforestation. So now that Brazil has a new government, the European Commission very much hopes to um, negotiate a new addendum on deforestation with um, Latin American countries of Mercosur, um, and then to to seal that deal um, in their in their eyes, ideally next year. But it remains a question whether that's actually realistic.
2: Yeah, can I jump in with a question for Barbara, actually, which is you know, how? How big are these trade deals? Not not in terms of the countries, the economies that they're trading with, but how expansive are they? Because we've seen the EU in the past get into trouble uh, with agreements uh, that are so uh, that, that are so encompassing of, of the economy that they require ratification by national parliaments or regional parliaments. And that was certainly the case with Canada, which is partly derailed by a vote in all places in the Francophone region of Belgium, Bologna, It's my sense, but please tell me that the deals that we're negotiating now kind of avoid this complexity by being just somewhat less ambitious. Is that right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So because of of, of all the issues that you mentioned that they have run into, um, they have renegotiated the institutional architecture of a lot of these deals. So for example, with Chile, Mexico... um, to make sure that they can, rat- can get ratified just by the European Parliament and then the Council, and so that they can avoid, for the trade part at least, that they can avoid the national and the regional parliaments. Of course, the political agreement, which is always kind of linked to that, still has to pass through um, the national and regional parliaments because it's not an EU competence. But as we saw with Canada, as long as the trade, the provisional trade aspects of the deal kind of can start then, you know, for the EU side, the most important bit um, has, um, is kind of uh, ongoing. And then you can also go back to all those capitals and say, look, we have done this, it's actually been working out really good. And then hopefully, you know, you all get those ratified. So it's a, it's a complex exercise. And this is kind of how the EU is now trying to solve it. But obviously, there's a lot of criticism, because some people say it's just a power grab from the commission, right?
3: You've mentioned energy and one of the um, beefs between the United States and the European Union is over Euro- US exports of LNG to to Europe, which Europeans accuse the Americans of marking up on price. But we've seen several sort of bilateral deals between countries uh, within Europe and in the Gulf to secure LNG supplies. Do you think this is an area, perhaps I'm starting with you, Stan, where the European Commission will look to play more of a role in securing, say, energy supplies through specialist deals with other suppliers?
2: I, I think they'd like to. I think they see this as an area in which they can add value. Uh, since really the beginning of the crisis, we've seen an effort to uh, do kind of bulk buying of gas and to ensure that uh, several groups and countries didn't go to the same huge suppliers of LNG and outbid each other. But, you know, energy and energy mix remain national Uh And what we've seen in the last few few weeks, I think, probably a few months now, is an impact on uh, the idea of a, of a gas price cap. And part of the reason we are seeing that is that there are a bunch of countries that don't want to put too much power in the European basket. They see this as still something which is run at, at national level. On the U.S. side, there is some, uh, some ill will towards the U.S., Obviously, is making a lot of money from, from LNG exports. I think what I would say is firstly, we don't really know anything about these deals. Um, they're opaque, they're private sector deals. It's not like trading oil where there's a clear and transparent market. Um, and I'd say actually the, the, the bigger gripe, uh, arguably, is with Norway, which is kind of our neighbor and ally, and which isn't really doing LNG, it's doing pipeline gas, uh, which, is, which is piped very expensive. And you do hear quite a bit of impatience towards the Euro region saying, you know, you guys are making really fiscal good money here in part thanks to the difficulties that, that we're going in. In the same way that we fail out countries that have real difficulties in Europe, we kind of need to bail in the countries that get unexpected cash bonanzas like Norway
3: is getting now. Um, we're talking a lot about what the the world leaders are doing, but what about European public opinion? Um does the do the I mean obviously it should vary within countries, but as a whole, do European citizens favour the protectionist approach or are they swashbuckling free traders? I
0: mean I think uh, it very much depend from country to country, right? We've now been looking more closely to the Swedes, obviously, because they um, will lead the the Council of the EU in the next six months, and we've seen a change in government there, a uh, total change in government, right? But when it comes to trade, they say exactly the same thing, even though it's a totally different government. Um, f- whether or not they are free traders is not even an issue of discussion, whereas obviously in France, um, you'd have a totally different, different public debate um, so i think that is also a bit the challenge of the eu and especially now when it comes to the european response towards the americans on, on the subsidies issue that you have to make sure that you kind of have to find a common ground within within these public public and political debates yeah.
1: and and stanley uh if uh if i have read one of your recent columns correctly it seems like even though The European public is remains largely favorable to uh, globalization as a sort of as a as a phenomenon. The views it expresses on on trade are increasingly uh, well. It's it's warming up to protectionism positions that were uh, were maybe unthinkable just a few years back um, are now being uh, expressed in these opinion polls. Do you do you see it the same way? Is 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 there a shift? Uh, in public opinion towards less um, free trade and more protectionism?
2: I I think there is a shift, but I mean, it starts from a remarkably strong position for free trade. Um, The EU does opinion polls on this, and the EU as a whole, citizens as a whole, uh, say they have a positive view of free trade. 77% of them say they have a positive view of free trade, and 16% say they have a negative view of free trade. Even France, which is the least infused country of the 27, is still three to one favourite uh three to one positive versus versus negative. Same with globalization. Um people overwhelmingly have a, a positive uh impression of it. i must say I was a little bit surprised at that. But uh, as you allude to more people say more people now say they like protectionism uh than dislike it. So that's that's a little bit of a paradox. And I think there's two events uh that will have shaped that. Uh one of them is COVID, uh in which we saw you know, Europe worried for a time uh, about its ability to source important things like how kind of to and faith uh, And then the second one is, is the war in Ukraine, which is uh, really kind of seen a resurgence in the idea of a, of a geopolitical thought. Barbara's already mentioned strategic autonomy, and Menir McCall has been talking about it for years, but it, it does kind of resonate a bit more now that, that you see that the world is not a happy place. And maybe we... Are thinking about doing trade more with our friends as opposed to more with the people who are giving us this anything.
0: Yeah, and maybe to add to that, I think we cannot underestimate um, the influence of friends here. I mean, when during the French presidency of the EU, you know, we thought that the influence of friends on, on trade policy could not have been bigger. you know, as just as a reminder, at that point, you know. All free trade deals were basically paused. There was such a focus on on trade defense instruments. Um, there, France has already made sure that there was a, a chief trade enforcement officer. Right, just the title itself. This was unthinkable a couple of years ago. Um, and, uh, where, where's he from, Barbara? And he, exactly, <laughs> which of the twenty-seven countries in the EU managed to snag that job? Exactly, which exactly with the job then went to a French official. Um, Sorry, to, to an official of French nationality. Um, so, I mean, their influence was already so big. And now with this, um, with this response to the, to the American Inflation Reduction Act, you again see their massive influence, which is also partly because, you know, in Germany, the response from Germany is so unclear, right? Every time people call Berlin, they get three different responses. So that obviously helps Paris a lot in their influence in the EU. Yeah.
2: And then obviously kind of the elephant in the room is Brexit. Uh, which, which kind of completely changed the political dynamic of, of free trade versus a more protectionist approach. You, you did see an attempt early on uh, from uh, some mainly northern European countries uh, to form a free trade alliance, the New Hanseatic League. That has actually kind of largely dissolved uh, over the course uh, of time. Uh, but the people who, who would traditionally have been, uh, been British allies, notably the Netherlands. Uh, are now much more on, on a French line. Um, you hear the Dutch talk about not strategic autonomy, but open strategic autonomy, which, as far as I can tell, is much the same thing. Um, and, and that was unthinkable a uh, few years ago. So, so I think it, it, it has helped uh, Macron uh, to, to have Britain out of the club rather than inside of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, it's widely known that the UK is not the most popular country in this town at this at this point. Um, But it's for the last couple of weeks, it's the first time that I've heard some people literally sigh like this would not have happened if we still had the Brits here. So that that to me was kind of an ironic, ironic feeling in a way.
1: Yeah. And just just to continue on, just to stay on this issue of of Brexit. uh, One of the things that I think the Brits were credited for for doing when they were uh, when they were in, was not just uh, pushing for free trade agreements with uh, with other countries, but also deepening the, the single market within the EU. How is, how is Brexit going to affect that, uh, going to affect the balance of power about uh, issues like the uh, digital single market, things of that uh, nature after Brexit? Uh, Barbara? Yeah. The, so
2: the single market was uh, sort of a British heavy interest. Uh, that they would push whatever they had have the opportunity. The context is that the single market is is not in great shape. It, it still does very well what it was originally designed to do, which is a single market in goods. But if you think about the, the birth of the EU, it's coal, it's steel, later it's cars, it's all stuff that moves across borders. The single market works really quite well for, for goods. For services, whether it's you know, insurance products or banks or you know, mobile phones and so on, it's much less good. And the problem is that services over time are becoming a much bigger part of the European economy. And therefore, uh, things like the digital single market, uh, the financial single market become really important. And those really haven't gone anywhere uh, in in the last few years. Occasionally, somebody kind of mentioned the state of the union speech or something, but there isn't a big push for a deepening of the single market. Uh, And that's certainly something that would have happened, I think, if Britain was
3: still part of the club. Um, in that case, I'll, I'll pivot slightly away from Europe and the near abroad to a country that the European Commission was trying to get an investment treaty with at the start of the Biden administration, and that's China. Um, this then stalled in part because of a dispute between China and Lithuania. Um, what role has China's economic expansion, in particular its state-driven model, Um, had on the EU's internal policies and external trade policies.
0: Yeah, I think that in trade, even though we're now talking a lot about the US, in essence, it's always about China. Um, I mean, the West tried to pull China into the multilateral trading system, right? That didn't work. Um, And even even in the discussions with the US when it comes to trade it's always about China because obviously Washington wants to go um much more aggressive towards Beijing and then um the EU is is much more uh, looking for a diplomatic approach and uh, especially within the EU, right? There is so much divergence on how to approach China, but when it comes to the economic relationship and the ec- political relationship, that basically every discussion that we have on trade is about how to tackle China.
2: I think that the thinking, yeah, the thinking, uh, the things really evolved uh, around China, um, you know, there's a feeling that China never really played by the global trade. rules. Right? It played with service to them. It got into the WTO. Uh, but but fundamentally, uh, you know, it was, it didn't, didn't think the rules really apply to it in, in many ways. And that was fine for a long time. When it was a relatively poor country, you know, 20 years ago, when it was a relatively small part of the global economy, people could turn a blind eye to that. Uh, obviously, you know, many, many years of percent economic growth, uh, as, as the West has going much more slowly, have changed the balance. Uh, and now the anxiety is, is much more uh, tangible. Now it's a problem um, and it's become even more of a problem since uh, the US has uh, kind of hardened uh, its approach to China and, and trying to ensure that Europe is, is on the American side um, in, in terms of isolating China which is not not a comfortable uh, position uh, for Europe uh, if only because uh, as with all things there are many different points of view uh, there are many different constituencies um, not, not all of whom kind of agree on China. Um, and as Barbara pointed out, even, even in Germany, these questions kind of elicit three different answers. So you multiply that by 27, uh, and, and you can see the difficulty of a coherence to coherent China policy. The EU.
0: Yeah, you see that play out in so many different different discussions, right? Um, the EU just took China to the WTO, over um, over the Lithuania case. We now have an upcoming decision on whether the Netherlands is going to impose, yes or no, expert controls on, on their chips from SML um, to China, kind of, um, after US, massive US pressure. And there's every, every small discussion that we have always Kind of is within the the bigger disunity on how to approach uh, approach China. Uh, another example is now the the upcoming anti coercion instrument, right, which is very a very powerful trade defense instrument for the EU. Again, something that would have been unthinkable five or ten years ago. Um, that a discussion that we're now having, and the free traders don't like it, but at the same time they feel very much, like Stan said, that this shift um, towards uh, towards China is just pushing them in this in this direction.
3: In conversations um, with European officials, I think around the trade council the other week, um, just after President Macron's state visit, um, some European officials complaining that every time they talk to the US, the only thing the US wants to talk about is China. Um, You mentioned the export controls from ASML to prevent China getting access to EUV equipment that is used in the manufacture of semiconductors. Um, I just wonder, with the electric vehicle credits that the US has and some of the critical technology, not just the equipment that ASML manufactures, but also the mirrors that Zeiss, which is a German company, manufactures, um, and other components uh, that are in the R&D supply chain element of supply of semiconductors and chips that are located within Europe. Is there scope for, politically speaking, a grand bargain between the US and the EU, where they sort of trade export controls on semiconductors for access to the yep. credits?
0: I have literally asked that to a lot of people um, that are, you know, involved or briefed on, on this discussion. What their argument is is they say it's not a trade off, right? We don't need to put something on the table um, to make to convince the Americans to um, give us concession on the Inflation Reduction Act. The their argument is, you know, the U.S. The US has put us into this problem. It's now up to them to solve this. Um, you know whether or not that w- it's an argument that will convince people in Washington <laughs> remains to be seen. But that is the answer I have gotten so far.
3: Okay, so I'll, I'll move to my next question, which will probably be one of my last. Um, the EU has, in part, because of the war in Ukraine, the conversation around expansion of the EU has returned after sort of being moribund for a, a few years. If the EU were to expand, and I'm thinking about the countries in the Balkans that have been sort of on the waiting list for. A long time um, and have made changes um, to try and get into the European Union but been spurned, um, such as North Macedonia. Do you think their inclusion in the European bloc would push the EU in a more protectionist or a more open trading direction? Uh,
2: interesting. Uh, the simple answer is uh, I don't know. Uh, smaller countries have tended to be uh, more open to to foreign trade, uh, but I, I don't know if that's the case uh, with the Balkans. Uh, one of the things that is a bit specific in the Balkans uh, in the rest of Europe is we've seen up late quite a lot of Russian and Chinese uh, influence. In part because, as you point out, Europe has been very, very slow in, in taking them on. Uh, and I'm sure that they would like to have the of both worlds, i.e. be part of the EU, but to still have some kind of relationship, I think, particularly with China, rather than, than Russia, these days. Uh, but to, to be seen uh, as a sort of conduit for for, uh, for Chinese companies uh, into the EU.
0: Yeah, um, I I mean, also, I don't know, and it's very dangerous as a Western European to to talk about this. What I do know is that a lot of Western European countries are very afraid of. How this would imbalance the power dynamics within the bloc, including on trade. Um,
1: yeah,
2: this is another thing, incidentally, that uh, another debate where the UK's absence, I think, has weighed uh, weighed quite heavily. The UK was uh, always very keen on uh, enlargement, essentially uh, for quite cynical reasons. That, you know, the bigger the club was, the less it could do. Um, and, and therefore the French had the opposite view, you know, if you wanted to keep in the you, you couldn't do it if you were, you know, 35 or 40 uh, around the table uh, and hence we're talking about having some kind of reforms uh, before you can reform uh, reforms that you uh, government uh, before you let, let uh, those those kinds
3: So, Barbara and Stan are both out. I'm joined by Francois, who unfortunately was not able to make the initial recording, but has made a celebrity appearance um, for the outro recording. Francois, I know you. this is a topic you're very passionate about. So do you want to lead us off with your thoughts on EU trade?
4: Yeah, first of all, I'm absolutely gutted I wasn't able to make it one of those topics i was really really excited about but you know just started a new job couldn't make it need to make a good impression um so yeah i'm just here for it as a guest star one thing as i was researching the topic as we were preparing the, the topic together which i found was so interesting is i was looking at what um stanley published for the economist on trade and protectionism in the eu and i came across a like 2016 article on how the EU is becoming protectionist, and then a 2005 article on how the EU is becoming protectionist. (laughs) What's interesting is you always feel like the topic is brand new, and then you realise this topic has been going on for ages. So it's just kind of one one thought, which I thought was quite useful um, to get kind of a bit of, kind of take a step back and realise a lot of the conversations we have might seem very new, but always anchored around something much older. Yes, and Jorge, that was something that our
3: guests had somewhat commented on in the, the trickiness of defining the EU as either a protectionist or a free trading um, outfit. Um, I'm not sure if you picked up on that from at least what Barbara was saying when uh, when we asked, is the EU a global advocate for free trade or is it one of the, the signs of protectionism?
1: Well, I would, on the, on the nominal disquisition, on the, on, the, on the terminological dispute over whether the EU is a free trading area or a customs union, I think we need to turn to uh, the enlightened uh, opinion of Nigel Farage. Nigel Farage always said from the lectern in the European Parliament that U- the European Union never was a free trading area. It was a customs union. It's a it's a union of countries that agree to lower trade barriers between them, but that raise them with the outside world, which is a different which is a different sort of arrangement than NAFTA. NAFTA is a free trade deal. NAFTA is a set of countries that join together uh, to freely trade uh, across a number of products and and services and but do not take the extra step of raising common barriers so that other countries that would want to trade with NAFTA have to pay tariffs that's not what NAFTA is about NAFTA is about free trade it's not about tariffs but the EU is not only about free trade it's it's about creating a single market that's certainly a part of the part of the the, the formula but then it's also, uh, a customs union it's it's uh an area that is encircled by tariffs so i think this is sort of the ambiguous record of the eu and i think it's really interesting as françois pointed out that this has been a, a sort of a steady drumbeat that journalists have been talking about for decades now that the eu is turning protectionist well perhaps if the eu has been turning protectionist for the better part of the last 3 decades then maybe it never really was a free trading area in the first place right um so I think this is a conversation that is imbued with uh sort of equ- equivocal, ambiguous um uh concepts, notions. Uh and I think our two guests did a really good job there of uh sort of defining what it is that we're talking about from the get-go.
4: Yeah,
3: it's not the first stuff, time.
1: Uh, sorry.
4: This is probably the first time Naja Farage is gonna get called on this podcast as the voice of wisdom, <laughs> but uh, let's appreciate this a moment. <laughs>
3: Yeah. I'm sure he'd be delighted to hear it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the it's, it's funny. So you mentioned the, at least the, the customs union component of the single market. And this was something, you know, both our guests uh, talked about the Lithuania China dispute over Lithuania, opening a trade office in Taiwan. Um, Stanley has written about it in his column for the economist. And it's something that, diplomats in China and Beijing were extremely confused about why the European Union would go to such lengths to protect Lithuania, a small country um, on the continent, when the EU is such a massive trading bloc. Why would they go to such lengths to protect one member? And it's because the sanctity of the customs union Um, ranks above all which is something a little bit harder for people outside of Europe to understand and it certainly confused the Chinese in this particular trade dispute which as Barbara mentioned is now going to the WTO.
4: I think maybe what's interesting about the conversation at the moment is that often the kind of protectionist instincts of the EU were often pushed because of national interests. You know uh, it was France wanting to protect its farmers it was going to be this country wants to protect this sector, and so on and so on. What seems to be interesting at the moment about inflection on trade is that it's theorised as at a kind of an EU level. It's theorised under the, the concept of strategic autonomy. It's being theorised by EU bureaucrats, not just you know national heads of states. So I think that in itself is got an interesting inflection, and we'll see if it, ha- if it has legs. And obviously, you know the theorization of strategic autonomy it could just be a rationalization of national interests on a European level. But I think that's an interesting, interesting reflection that we should follow in the months to come.
1: Yeah. And I wanted to, uh, if, if, if I'm allowed to sort of tie back, tie this back into your earlier question, Julian, I, I wanted to mention that, um, this, uh, this, uh, Thing about the EU of not being uh, as is claimed a free trading area, but being a more protectionist creature, uh, this has uh, befuddled and 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 challenged and exasperated economic liberals for decades. I mean Hayek even wrote about it. And uh, what I wanted to mention is, I've for a while now I've been I've been thinking of pitching a, a long sort of essay to the Cato Journal of Regulation. About something that I would like to call the EU's regulatory conceit, which uh, which is the following: essentially, the EU says that it needs to centralised regulatory power in Brussels so as to allow the single market, so as for to allow for goods and services to be traded freely across national borders within the EU. But one thing does not necessarily lead to another, because. A single market is not synonymous with a high regulatory burden. You could have a single market with very light regulations. All you need to create a single market is for the regulations to be the same, or at least to have uh, mutual recognition of you know your regulations are okay in my jurisdiction, so your goods are, are good to come into my country. But what the the EU is this is the regulatory conceit is it says in order to allow for the free uh, movement of goods, let's hike Let's let's up the regulations. One thing does not lead to to another. Uh, that's a totally sine qua non. Um, and yeah. I
2: think just one other. Oh, sorry,
3: I think just one other thing I was going to add on um, for this discussion is, and it was a, a thread that it was in the background until we finally asked the question, Jorge, of what about. China. um, And Barbara made the case that every aspect of this debate really just revolves around how the EU and other countries relate to China. And, you know, I'd suggested the idea of a grand bargain between the US and the EU and confronting China. Um, Perhaps that's a way, an avenue for communication, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on whether the US and the EU can align their approaches to China um, in the area of trade.
1: Well, I think what we're seeing now is that as much as we would like to set up a free world trading block to counter China's rise, uh, the differences that we have in terms of trade policy between the EU and the states are too big for, for that kind of common block to emerge. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that uh, the EU and the US can uh, address their respective grievances towards one another in the interest of setting up a common front against China. I mean I know that that's something that a lot of people in Washington want, right A lot of people realize in Washington that uh, and this is partly why the uh, U.S pulled out of, of the trans-pacific partner uh, trans-pacific partnership under Trump is to isolate China economically, right to rally the countries of the free world in a single freely trading economic bloc. To counter the rise of China, I, again, I'm I'm pretty skeptical that we can manage to pull that off because I think that the, our our, our um, m- mutual um, disagreements are just too too many. Uh, I I have to
3: have to point this out. Um, and Francois, I know you have to go, but our former professor on trade, Mark Bush, would scream at us both if we didn't mention that um, China was not a a signatory to the Trans-Pacific Partnership and uh, (laughs) that Trump withdrawing for it actually had the inverse effect of promoting Chinese leadership in the Pacific, um, perversely. But then again, he never really understood multilateral trade agreements.
4: (laughs) Absolutely. That's the one thing we would lose points on, basically all the points on, is if we forgot that China was not part of the TPP.
3: Only because Rand Paul, I know, Trump mentioned a thing and then Rand Paul, I think, pointed it out. There you go. It's the only time I'll ever name check Rand Paul. Rand Paul and Nigel Farage getting name checked in the outro segment. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. Um, we hope you really enjoyed this episode. And if you'd like to hear more from us, please subscribe to our Patreon, where these episodes go up early, um, and we'll also have more bonus content coming to you in the new year. We are taking Christmas and New Year's off, but there will be one more episode um, that we're very excited to bring you uh, during a holiday break. So for now. Thank you, Francois. Thank you, Jorge. And uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Or whatever you may celebrate over this winter break.
4: Au revoir.